Hello everybody, I'm Syra. I'm part of Medics Money, What Medical School Didn't Teach Us. And today, Tommy and I are doing a podcast together. So I will be talking about the influence and the disproportionate impact of financial illiteracy on the female gender as a whole. And Tommy and I will be chit-chatting about how this cycle starts and what we can do to break the cycle. You're listening to What Medical School Doesn't Teach Us, where we tackle pro-financial tips for medical students and foundation year doctors, career ideas, and how to leverage your skills and time more effectively. Join us, and remember the golden rule, this podcast is for general information only, and does not constitute any form of advice. Of course, you all know Tommy, but Tommy, I'll let you introduce yourself as usual. Yeah, my name's Tommy, I'm a GP and one half of Medic's Money. Well, it's not really half now because we've got like way more of us now. So I must be like one, one tenth of medics money now, which feels quite good. It's like having that one. How many was it? One fourteen millionth of a George Cross. That that felt great when the the COVID pandemic happened. Oh yeah, yeah. I forgot that. <laughs> oh, and claps. Yeah, claps. <laughs> claps. So wait, wait, Syra, you didn't tell everyone about yourself because oh, you're sorry. a doctor, yes, which is yeah. useful, but also uh, it's really it. But then Ed makes just outshines us all. Anyway, I love talking about Ed because he's my favourite. You're my favourite too. I'm Syra. <laughs> I'm a doctor and a chartered accountant. I used to work as a chartered accountant for about six years. And then I decided to help people and become a doctor. But what I magically found out was as much as I tried to run away from finance, it just never left me like a parasite. But I love it and it, I love talking about it. And actually what I love is mixing the two together and a lot of my um, extracurricular activities in medicine, so my QI projects, etc., all have a financial and performance improvement influence. And that is my vision for the future that we are able to cre- create financially astute clinicians, which is why we're doing both medics money and now we've done what medical school didn't teach us because we want financially astute clinicians from the beginning. So we want to start that thinking all the way from medical school and maybe even from the cradle. We'll see where we go from there. What do you think, Ed, Tommy, even? Right, that's it. In the last two minutes, I've gone from half of medics money to one tenth. And I thought that I was your favorite, but now I found out that Ed is your favorite. And then you called me Ed (laughs) accidentally. So I'm actually thinking about walking off right now. But no, what medical school didn't teach us is really important because it's a brand new podcast and a brand new section of our page, of Medics Money page, just for medical students. And exactly what you said, like, yeah, it's great to start the the financial literacy journey early, like when you're F1. But if you can start it at medical school, you're just going to be that much better off. So the podcast is going amazing, outshining the main podcast. And the email newsletter is amazing as well. So everything is going really well there, despite me being your lesser You're favorite part of Medics Money. I... Yeah, yeah, it's too late to backtrack <laughs> now. Let's just get into this because this is actually like a really important topic. And the Medical Women's Foundation asked us to do a talk on this and you kindly did well you're gonna do it but by the time this has gone out you will have done it so it's kind of like that weird time lapse thing so let's just imagine you did do it how did it go it was fabulous and everyone was amazing and i'm really grateful for the opportunity to be able to talk to the members of the medical women federation thank you so much for having me so what are the key issues that you talked about 
at this talk, which is in the future. This is going really yeah. weird. One of the things I'm really passionate about is how financial illiteracy disproportionately impacts women or the female gender. And whilst I was looking at what to talk about, I started to delve down this rabbit hole. And I started to realize that actually this financial illiteracy, this lack of confidence that is prevalent in the female gender actually begins very early. It begins from childhood. And I recently found out it begins from in utero, which I'll tell you all about. And so basically what I wanted to talk about was how we think as a society and how that thinking actually influences the confidence that women have in making financial decisions, in taking risks and in investing. And what I found really important was that to be able to change our mindset, we almost need to start unlearning things from a generation ago. It's not something we can just start doing right now. Like, let's just change this course and we will be fine. This stuff is so deeply ingrained that actually we need to talk about it. We need to bring awareness about it. And it might not even make changes in your lifetime, but you know that if you start changing your mindset now, that your children and your children's children will have a drastically different outlook on how money works than you do. Yeah, absolutely. And everything in money happens slowly, but I think you're right. It's like a generational shift, which hopefully we're contributing to a small amount today. I mean, where do you want to start with this? Because I guess like the common things that we get asked is about, you know, working less than full time, which I mean, I've done less than full time as well, and it's becoming increasingly popular. But are we going to say that it's more common for women to work less than full time? I would say so, just because of caring responsibilities. And as a society, we still expect women to manage most of the caring and household responsibilities. And I have a very modern husband, and I'm very grateful. Um, but gender roles still exist, and they're still deeply ingrained, if not in the white culture, if you excuse me saying so, but actually in the ethnic minority culture, those things are slightly slower in progressing. And so we definitely, and considering the huge amount of IMGs we have in the UK, actually addressing that I think is really important. So if we start from now and work backwards, people are saying, well, how are women supposed to equalize if they're supposed to work less than full time? Probably even if your male counterpart, so if you're in a heterosexual relationship, decides to work 80%, you might decide to work 60% because of the disproportionate impact of childcare and household chores that you need to carry. And so as a result, you start already creating this divide and that divide will just snowball and it will affect all sorts of things like the income that you're making now, but also your pension contributions. All of those things start getting affected, your career and your career trajectory, which means you don't meet the same level of income that your heterosexual partner would as quickly as they would because of the time that's been lost effectively in the less than full time cycle. But when you talk about equalizing things like that, what you really need to have is a sit down conversation about how you're both going to take an equal hit. It can't be that, I mean, either neither of you take the hit or both of you take the hit, but that's the only way in my mind that you can actually limit the amount of disadvantage that the female partner possibly experiences. I don't know what your thoughts are, Tommy, on that. Yeah, I think like one thing to think about is if you're going less than full time, your income is going to drop. Like that's just how it works. And I guess it's like, how can you plan for that? Because there's a few things that you can do and a few things that you probably should think about. Should we get into that? Because like, you yeah. know, 
yeah, it's a fact. You're gonna your income is gonna be lower. Which... So you can do a lot of planning around that. So if you're planning to go less than full time, I would also suggest speaking to an independent financial advisor on this because they can actually help you crunch some numbers on the less than full time side of things. But if you don't want to do that, the what the first thing I'd suggest is actually identifying income versus expenses and how much that income exactly is going to drop because then you can actually start to address the expenses that you might be able to cut back on but actually expenses that might sort of disappear because of going less than full time so for example i'm currently working as an f3 and a byproduct that shouldn't have surprised me but did is that i'm saving a huge ton of money on petrol because i'm not commuting 30 miles to work every day and that's actually been significant. I didn't realize how significant it would be. And again, as a chartered accountant, I'm ashamed to say that. But it's actually been about £300 a month I've saved just by doing an F3. So that means even though my income has dropped, so have my proportional expenses. And so those are the kinds of things if you can try and separate those and plan for those. And then the other thing we talked about is if you're going less than full time for a reason that's not kids, that can be different as well. So if you're going because of your well-being or you want to, you might have some extra time, it might be a good opportunity to diversify your income streams. So you can actually pursue passion projects, you can even freelance, you can locum. And that's really helpful. It gives you that freedom to be able to enhance your income without the stress of being on that full-time doctor's rotor. And then in terms of other planning as well, depending on how less than full-time you decide to go, there are tax advantages as well. And everybody who goes less than full-time gets £1,000 as just a flat rate in their salary as part of the junior doctor contract. And then you can plan for marriage allowance, which is your partner, if they're making more than you and you're not meeting all of your personal allowance, which is probably unlikely but if it is they can actually apply to take some of your personal allowance and then that reduces their tax bill and then also things like if you are going to be depending on childcare, for example and you need to use the child benefit then actually looking at your partner and going do you think you should go a little bit less than full-time to bring yourself just under the tax bracket to then be able to benefit from that have time for your children together because even though your income looks like it's gone down, technically so have your expenses because you're not paying as much in childcare. So having that conversation, and this is why I say an independent financial advisor is helpful, is because it can become messy really quickly. And sometimes you don't know what you don't know. What are your thoughts, Tommy? Yeah, I think like childcare as well is so expensive that, that especially if you're in that area that Sarah mentioned where you might lose tax-free childcare, you know, that is a really punitive place to be tax wise. And so it might make sense for you to work less. And it, it's crazy that the tax system incentivizes a situation where working less can get you ending up with more, but it does. So yeah, childcare is super expensive. I think like one thing that we did when we had children was move close, and this is not possible for everybody, but move closer to family if possible, because tax-free childcare is, is very efficient, but granny daycare is very efficient it's and very valuable it's valuable for your kids better, yeah. i'm gonna say as long as you've got nice grand like nice parents some people my grandparents weren't <laughs> brilliant <laughs> but you know as long as they're healthy not toxic that's fine yeah <laughs> definitely but yeah i think that's a good point and i mean like 
you know, like you just said, like, write it down. Like, are we going to say start a spreadsheet of income and outgoings? Because, you know, really what you're looking at is the difference between what's going in, like your income's going to drop. But if your outgoings are dropping even more, you could actually end up doing surprisingly all right out of it. Feel free to take this out. But um, on my Instagram page, there's a link to a complete free uh, budgeting spreadsheet. And it's really deep. Um, all it, it just gives you loads of prompts of all the different expenses you might not have thought of. And it's all got formulas to pull everything through. Again, I make absolutely zero benefit from this. It's purely just a free read. Yeah, I love it. Um, and it's something really helpful if you do eventually go to an independent financial advisor. Providing them with this piece of information means that you actually save money because you're not using their time for them to have to figure all this stuff out with you you've just basically given them all the information that they need off the bat so it's on at the finance med and it's just on my my link i i don't even track who's downloading it or anything like that it's just purely there to help um and i just thought i'd go into the figures a little bit on the tax-free childcare, just so it makes sense to people where they are so for every eight pounds you pay into the account you have to create an account with the government, which is really easy, it's online. So for every eight pounds you pay into the account, the government top um, by two pounds to use towards a registered childcare provider. So that could be a nursery, a childminder. They have to be registered, however, for this. Um, so basically you get you can get tax-free childcare at the same time as you're getting your 30 hours of free childcare. If you're eligible for both, you don't have to choose between them. Um, and the money goes directly to your registered childminder or registered three because they're they're connected to account with the government but then if you or your partner are expected to have adjusted net income so that basically means everything that's come off as a deduction so your PAYE your national insurance your student loan your um, pension contributions are the main things I think if you have a cycle to work scheme as well that can come off um, but not mess fees and things like that um, if it's expected to be over 100,000 in that tax year, you won't be eligible, which is why I'm saying that if you're expected to go over that 100,000 threshold, would it be worth actually you going down to 80% so you don't cross the 100,000 threshold and then actually you're eligible for this tax-free childcare on top, which you would have had to pay a penalty for because you wouldn't have been eligible for it. And that's why I wanted to talk about that. Yeah, definitely. And, and like, let's just be like straight that's a good problem to have right but if you do have that problem you need to watch out for it because it's totally ridiculous it makes no sense and if you get caught in this trap you could be slogging it out of work thinking you're going to make extra money but the net benefit to you is actually well there's no net benefit in certain circumstances so we have tons of information about this on our website i think if you google medics money marginal tax trap or something like that you'll find a really detailed explanation of it so yeah that's really good explanation there Okay, cool. What about, are we going to go into like child benefit? Because when you hear the word benefit, some doctors may think, oh, well, I'll be unlikely to be eligible for state benefits. No. So if you're, if you're relatively early in your career, um, you, so basically if you earn over, under 50,000, then you're eligible for the full child tax. Um, and again, this is the adjusted net income. So what we talked about before. So this is everything um, deductions. So you can claim for every child who is under 16 or if they're under 20 in an approved education or training. So that's sixth form college, for example, or they decide to go to full full time vocational college and things like that. That can all count if until they're 20 years old and every four weeks for the eldest child, 
you get £24 a week. And for any other children after that, you get £15.90 a week. Now, the government has been throwing around the idea that this would be on a two-child limit. I don't know if you've heard about this, Tommy, but it hasn't come through. Um, so they were, they're suggesting that basically all they pay for is two children and then any children you have after that, you're, um, and, you know, that is not, thankfully. Um, so the um, caveat here is if either you or your partner's adjusted net income is over 50000 a year, you may have to pay the high income child benefit charge. Now you'll never need to pay more than what you'll never need um, that it, enough for it to go like negative, if that makes sense. The worst thing is it'll be zero. So it's actually still worth claiming because it goes up in increments. And um, what it would be is claiming is, is actually still claiming your child tax benefit and letting them calculate. And when it hits zero, then maybe it's not worth doing. But until then, it is absolutely worth doing because you still get a little bit here and there, even after you. There's something really niche around that as well, which I can't remember the exact detail of. It's something to do with your national insurance. Yeah, so you're a uh, financially astute clinician. Am I winning you back slowly? No, because no. you spoke the truth at the start of the podcast <laughs> and called me in. Yeah, but I can edit Come that. Um, if, you <laughs> if you have to pay the charge, you can still get other advantages, which is why I'm saying it's worth, even though if you're well over 50, it's worth um, doing that because you can actually get national insurance credits. Now, what this means is that if you're on maternity leave or any um, reason you can't actually contribute to the national insurance at that time, you still get credits towards it so it doesn't hit your state pension. Um, so it's still absolutely worth doing. So say you take some time out for maternity leave, some of it's unpaid or is um, half um, crap, which it is for the latter, um, then your national insurance contributions might not hit enough to be a full year's worth, which might mean that you lose out on your state pension at the end. But by claiming this child benefit, even though you actually uh, getting any child benefit in return, it will count as a credit towards your national insurance account. So then it won't show as not being able to meet the threshold for a particular year. And then you won't be disadvantaged when it comes to um, getting geeky with the tax knowledge there. But I think that's really important kind of nuance to it. And the other thing to say as well is that I believe it's there was a open consultation about making basically check your national insurance record so that you get the full entitlement to state pension. Just go to HMRC's online personal tax account and have a look. You can just see your national insurance record there just to make sure that you're getting the full entitlement to the state pension. And, and you can top it up as exactly, well. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. And I think they just extended the time frame for doing that. Yes, they did. Because uh, the, the deadline passed and then they got over inundated by so many people doing it. So they just extended it. Really important to do that. I checked mine. So they've extended it to 2025 and they've also got an app as well, which is actually really user friendly. So well done them. So even if you don't want to navigate the whole website that app is actually really straightforward it's to forbidden use. to praise hmrc publicly on this podcast Syrah, so we're just gonna let that one slide <laughs> but no i mean like the personal tax account is really good bit of kit from hmrc the app sounds awesome as well yeah i checked my record and benefits of having a paper round when i was 16 is that i've got a really nice long national insurance record so that paper round seemed pointless at the time but could be kind of useful in the future All right, that's pretty niche. Let's get back mainstream. Could we talk a bit about parental leave and maternity and paternity pay? Absolutely. So one of the things I get asked about is how do I how do we equalize things between, you know, men and women? Well, that's where shared parental leave comes in. And so, for example, if we talk about maternity leave, maternity leave is the first few months are 
paid for and then half and then you go on to statutory maternity pay and then if you extend it all the way to 52 weeks you get nothing and so if you imagine that the woman in this scenario usually is taking the whole hit that's quite a long time of the male counterparts career developing and their pay staying stable and all of those things so they're not getting taking the hit in all sorts of different areas including their pension whereas the woman is which is where what I love about shared parental leave is that both parents can actually take equal amounts of leave and they can share the leave between them they can decide to take the leave together they can decide to do six months first you know one parent six months the other they can decide to chop and change it I mean, don't be too, don't take the mickey too much with this, like, oh, I'll take one week and she'll take one week, because that'll be really hard to administer. But things like, if you both want to do three months, the first three months of your baby's life together, you can do that. And then one parent can go back to work and the other parent can continue with the rest of the parental leave. Do keep in mind that it will cut that 52 weeks down, because the leave is basically 52 weeks, which you're allowed to share between each other. But the beauty of that means you can, if you truly want to equalize things in your household, it is entirely possible to do so. And more and more male counterparts in a heterosexual relationship are taking advantage of this. However, I have heard, unfortunately, that culturally it's still quite difficult because a lot of older male consultants are then sort of putting off their junior colleagues and saying oh we shouldn't you know that that will just hinder your career and things like that and unfortunately then making them not feel like they can use the parental leave and then it's also to do with things like if you're both taking shared parental leave there is one person in the household who either you're both taking the hit or one person's taking the hit but someone's always taking the hit and so when you start looking at those numbers and when you start looking at the possibility that as a as a mum you're willing to take the hit that this whole thing was about taking the hit but as as a dad you might not be prepared to take that level of hit because of just culturally how we are about men being the providers of the family and you know needing to progress so that's how shared parental leave works but it's definitely a conversation that's very personal and very much needs to be had well before you decide to have your kiddies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely a personal decision. Like personally speaking, I I don't want to say like I impeded my career. I, I did a less time at my career and more time with my kids. And that was one of the best decisions I ever made. Like it's so cliche, but they do grow up so fast. Like my eldest is now nine. And I think it's like that stat, isn't it? Like you've basically got 18 summers with them before they like don't want to hang out with you anymore so it's like well she's nine like we're halfway through our summers together and yeah it's not always like you're not always loving it being a parent is hard and I can say this because we just had half term together so that was seven days together actually it was actually eight days because my wife was working yesterday so I was on daddy daycare Uh, I don't think I had quite as many wrinkles this time yesterday but you know it is hard but I never regretted taking time out of my career to spend it with my kids. And yeah, they do grow up so fast. Like my nine-year-old is nine. So yeah, we only got nine summers left together. So yeah, and I hear that yeah. so much. So my sister, for example, I don't, she doesn't mind me talking about this, but she's currently unfortunately burnt out and she's on a bit of sick leave, but she's also got an 11-month-old baby. And she she actually went back to work after three months after having her first. 
And at the time she thought she was, because she's the main breadwinner in their household. And she thought she was doing the right thing because she was progressing her career and she was getting to a high level. And she thought that was fulfilling enough. And then she's now burnt out, unfortunately. But the moments that she has with her little one at the moment, she just messages me going, oh, he, he clapped. And he, you know, he's, he's pulling himself up on furniture or, you know, his little teeth, teeth, tooth is poking out and like all of these things. And she tells me, I can't believe I missed all these moments. I can't believe I never saw this for my first one. And she's now sort of almost grieving that time. And it's different for everybody, but almost like hindsight is twenty twenty, isn't it? And times you, in, in a way, it's turned out to be a bit of a blessing and obviously she's unwell, but at the same time, she's been able to capture these moments with her little one that she thought weren't really that important when she had her first one. So actually, you know, you might not think at the time when you're planning to have a child, you're planning your leave and you're thinking, oh, it's okay. Me as the dad, I'm just going to carry on. And then you take the the hit and then mom goes, yep, cool. No worries. Let's just do that. But actually, you don't realize what you're missing out on and here's the here's the lesson actually talk to the parents around you and see how they found it and see what they wish they'd done because that will should really influence your decision more than what you think you might miss or not miss yeah I guess it's just like come back to being true to yourself isn't it there's so many external pressures and influences and everyone seems to have an opinion on how to do parenting and I guess in a way we are giving an opinion now but I think if you just stay true to yourself and I just thought you know I'm never going to get this time with them again whereas my career will always be there and honestly I don't think it really held me back in any way shape or form to be honest and uh, but yeah I do remember when I sort of took the full amount of paternity leave uh, some of the people in the department have taken a whole lot of you I'm like Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think just try to be true to yourself. And yeah, I just think about that summers thing. 18, yeah, 18 summers. You've got 18 summers with them until they're off on their own. So don't waste no, them. It's not very much, is it? Let's go backwards a little bit. You said your girl's nine, your little girl's nine. And yeah. you've got two others. Uh-huh. What, how old are they and which order are they in? Nine-year-old girl seven-year-old boy and a three-year-old girl lovely and how much pocket money do they all make ah yeah okay so like i did a whole podcast about this actually i did a bit one with my wife as well so they don't get given any money but they have the ability to earn money Mm -hmm. so they get paid like for washing cars or washing the windows of it's like child labor basically (laughs) Yeah. And like I had a discussion with Will Rainey, who's a child's author and came on the podcast. And and I was like, look, I'm trying to teach them the benefit of money and the value of money. So I want them to understand, uh, you know, they go to the shop and they want to buy a magazine that's five pounds. Right. You got to wash the car twice in order to get that magazine. And then his argument is that if you don't give them an allowance and the ability to earn money on top, so give them pocket money, then they're never going to get used to managing the money. So yeah, I don't actually give them pocket money. I just make them work okay. for it. Even then, the three-year-old. Yeah. The f- Do you make them pay the 20% national insurance emergencies tax because you can't really estimate what they're going to make? And then they have to pay the national insurance of 12%, obviously. And then they're clearly going to have to pay a student loan because you're teaching them the value of money. <laughs> yeah, there are some deductions, yeah. definitely. My dad Especially did that. like, yeah. <laughs> 
I don't really hold much cash now. And then if I'm like, if I'm, if I need like a pound or something for a trolley, I'm like, right, kids, get your wallet out. You're the only one that's got any cash. <laughs> so yeah, it's not. It doesn't sound very equitable when you say it like that. But I also invest for them as yes. well, and we try to talk about investing as much as possible because they have a stocks and shares ISA, yep. Genius Stocks and Shares ISA, and yeah, we just kind of talk about it in that they hold a broadly diversified portfolio yeah. of like you know global tracker so they, they own about five thousand companies so like when we're out and about at like m&s for example i would be like look you know you own a bit of m&s every single person that spends money in the shop you are taking a percentage of that That's and really cool. getting it into your yeah. isa yeah i mean m&s is probably not a great example because i think their share price is absolutely tanking at the moment yeah. but let's say we go in the apple store yeah. uh, which we never do but that's a better example but yeah so we try to just sort of talk about it like that 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 their money is already working for them yeah and it's not going to be like a massive amount when they become 18. But my hope is that they will look back and think, ah, so like I, I made that money just by holding it for a long time and do, investing in the right thing. Yeah. Maybe I should just continue doing that for the rest of my life. So but can, I don't know. Because you have limits on your junior ISA of what you can put in there and the stocks and shares ISA I do agree is um, a, a superior choice to a cash ISA. You can actually get a junior SIP as well, I'd say. And so basically what you do is you save, start saving for their pension from now and you don't actually put in loads you can put in a hundred you know a month if you'd like you know and but that slow building and that whole that buying now and holding is what's going to benefit them in the future and the beauty of the junior sip as well is say when they've got their junior ISA and they're a teen and they're like yeah I can go traveling and you're like oh crap but they can if they want the junior sip they can only access at retirement so you've still got that safety net for them all the way through till there retirement which i really like the idea of yeah definitely so like the whole th point that you raised there about them getting full control of this money when they're 18 but <laughs> yeah I, I see a lot of people worry about that and i guess in the back of my mind like they're either going to do the right thing and carry on buying an index fund and do something sensible with it or we're going to have like an amazing 18th birthday party which to be honest i'm pretty chilled about yeah. either way uh, but i've got like 18 years to educate them and so that when they do get that money, they'll be like, right, I might spend a bit of it, but I might also save a bit. Or I might use a bit for a house deposit or something like that. So, yeah, it also puts a bit of pressure on me to yeah. educate them financially because they're going to get this money when they're 18. And if I yeah. have done a good job, they might do something sensible. And, and if they don't, worst case, there's going to be a massive 18th birthday party around my house in nine years time. So get it in your diaries. <laughs> <laughs> well, the frontal lobe doesn't fully develop until 25 and so my, uh, it, and, and I had a really fun conversation with a friend, actually, she's got a little boy and I'm going to be, so we were talking about these accounts. And so the husband and wife have got very different views. So wife, my friend, she says, I don't want, I want him to only spend it on these things. I don't want him to like, he has to use it on a house deposit or he has to use it on this. Otherwise it's going in a trust and he can get it when he's 25 or 30 or whatever. And husband says, well, it's his money his name's on that account, it's his money, and it's our job to make sure he's got the sensibilities to use that money properly. And so what if he uses it for one that a reason that you don't think is good, your reasoning, you know, like, it's, it might be good for him, it might be a good thing for him. So it's, it's fascinating, I think just that, that conversation and, and the option is there. So if you're both like, absolutely not, my kid's an idiot, we're going to put it in a trust, that option is there, you're not stuck is is what i wanted to say definitely i think like i wouldn't <laughs> yeah i think that it's, it's wise to have options diversify in everything you do but uh, yeah my kids have a junior stocks jazz isa and worst case big party at my house in nine years Lovely. so 
Yeah, okay, cool. So uh, that was awesome. Thank you so much for doing this with us today. And don't forget to subscribe to the What Medical School Doesn't Teach Us podcast. It's like much more diverse range of topics than Medics Money. It's not just about money, your podcast. No, like... no, not at all. It's So we cover things like well-being, mental health. Personally, I see financial well-being as being completely integral to personal well-being because you can't really relax you can't really do anything until you know you're financially secure there's that Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you need shelter food warmth and nourishment and all of those things cost money these days so you know they say money can't buy happiness but it can buy you choice and it can buy you freedom and it can buy you time those are the important things that you're actually buying with your money not necessarily happiness and that's my profound thought as we end this podcast. So check out the What Medical School Doesn't Teach Us podcast on your favorite podcast player. If you go to medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash WMSTDU. <laughs> wait, you do it. WMSTDU. I've had to say it over and over again in the mirror and thankfully nothing has popped out even though today's Halloween. So that is where you can get a really detailed ebook which covers everything that you need if you're sort of a medical student transitioning to F1 and it's not doesn't just cover money. The elective section is awesome. The student loan section is awesome. So download the ebook completely free. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Syra. And thanks for coming on our podcast. Maybe I'll get invited onto your medical school doesn't teach us podcast what one do you day. Mean? I don't You've know. Never been invited. We've, we'd love to have you. Well, has Ed been invited? No, he hasn't. Ah. Yeah, you're the first. I'd like to cordially invite you onto our What Medical School Didn't Teach Us podcast as our first. Medics Money partnership. <laughs> you may have redeemed yourself from <laughs> earlier, but I'll let the listeners decide. I know what I heard at the start. <laughs> Ed's your favorite. Uh, awesome. Thanks so much, Syrah. Take care. No worries. Thank you for having me.